Welcome to 721 Live. I'm Sam Hunter. I'm glad that you're with us. Thank you for joining us today. We are talking about prayer. We have been talking about prayer. We're going to continue to talk about prayer. And I think it's one of the richest, deepest, yet least understood, vague and ambiguous aspects of of Christianity, of following Jesus, of trying to live in the kingdom of God. This whole idea of prayer is confusing. I don't know exactly whether I'm doing it right. I don't know if I feel confident and comfortable in my prayers. And I, matter of fact, I rarely meet anyone who says, yeah, I'm, I feel really good about my prayer life. I, I, I really, I'm comfortable. I'm confident. I, it's just, it's, a, it's such a personal relationship prayer. It's ongoing. It's right where I want it to be. How about you? How do you feel about your prayer life? Are there questions you have? Are there things that, that you don't really understand? Or have you been been told things from the from the pulpit or maybe in Sunday school class or reading that just don't seem to make sense about prayer? Well, we are talking about all of those things, and we're going to talk some more about it today. We're going to get to that in just a moment. Let me first remind you that 721 Live is the radio arm of 721 Ministries. We have a website, 721ministries.org, 721ministries.org. You can find past radio shows, which I encourage you to go back and listen to to pick up on this prayer series. We have a Vimeo channel there where it's the same, pretty much the same, a little different, but, but following the same themes on a, on a video. We've got charts. We've got downloads. Try, just check us out at 721ministries.org. And also check out our sister website, puttinggreenblog.com puttinggreenblog.com. We've got our books on that. Then we've got a new one coming out shortly. I'll tell you more about that later, but you can find our books that we've published as well as sign up for our weekly devotional that we call The Putting Green, free of charge, of course. So 721ministers.org, puttinggreenblog.com. There's a passage that I have always loved, Second Chronicles 16.9. For the eyes of the Lord range throughout the earth to strengthen those whose hearts are fully committed to him. I just love that. For the eyes of the Lord range throughout the earth. I just love that imagery. To strengthen those whose hearts are fully committed to him. And now, to, just to keep moving in that theme of, of the God watching for you, loving you, always eager to talk to you, always having you approach him. Number six, Numbers six, excuse me, 24 through 26, very, very familiar blessing. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. The Lord turn his face toward you and give you peace. Well, there's a pretty much unknown little aspect to this whole idea the statement in verse 25 of number six the lord make his face shine on you and be gracious to you in the rich hebrew language that statement the lord make his face shine on you paints a picture of a father lifting up his child in his arms just like i was doing with my granddaughter just recently lifting her up above my face Eyes beaming with love and joy and adoration and just can't, just cannot love them any more than we love them. That's the image there. That's your heavenly father. That's how he sees you when you have surrendered your life to Jesus and born again. That's how he sees you. And he lifts you up and jostles you practically like a little child with, with joy and, and adoration just beaming out of his eyes. But sometimes my wayward, often defiant, sometimes stiff-necked self doesn't exactly qualify to be that precious little baby. You know, I, I, maybe, maybe you're different, but, 
or maybe you can really appreciate what I'm saying, but at times my behavior or my heart is far from any, any semblance of a beloved child. Yet, keeping the theme of the Father, they're loving their children, just like the father in the parable of the prodigal son. Just like we read in Second Chronicles, your father's eyes are always ranging throughout the earth to strengthen you. Remember the prodigal son, he, he, he leaves his father, he takes his share of the estate, then he squanders it, and he realizes he's in a pathetic situation, so he says, you know, I'll go back to my father, and I'll just, I'll just grovel, and I'll just get back as a, a job as a servant. I, I'll just do whatever it takes. But while he was still away off, Luke 15, his father saw him because his father's eyes were ranging throughout the earth seeking to look to strengthen his son, his wayward son. And the father was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and kissed him. You see, I can be like this prodigal son. I'm sure you can too. Defiant, rude, selfish sometimes, maybe more times than I'd care to think. My father's eyes, your father's eyes are always looking out for you. His eyes are ranging daily throughout the earth for you. The son steps up with his prepared apology speech. But his dad would have none of that. No groveling from my son. As a matter of fact, the father says, Quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. That's the picture of your heavenly father whose eyes are always ranging throughout the earth. All you need to do is approach him. All you need to do is come to him like a child, like a beloved child, the beloved child that you are when you're in Christ. This whole thing about the the eyes of the father always looking out reminds me of when I was about 10 or so, a Dracula movie came to town. And I wanted to go see it with my friends. But my dad warned me. He said, you know, it's going to be scary and there's no good that's going to come of this. But I went anyway against his wishes. I'm not sure how I got away with it or maybe he just acquiesced. But he was right. It scared me to death. And that night, I, I laying in my bed, I just knew Dracula was hiding in the closet. Or he was under the bed. He was going to get me. Terrified. There was no chance of me going to sleep in that kind of obvious impending danger. So I went and woke up my dad out of a deep sleep. And I said, Dad, please, please come sleep in the room with me. And because he was a loving father, he got out of bed, came into the room. He got in the other twin bed, told me everything was, would be all right. And I could, I could just hear him starting to go to sleep. But you see, that wasn't enough. Dad was in the other bed. Dracula could still sneak in and get me. So I woke Dad up again, and I said, Dad, are you watching me? Are you facing me? Please turn your face toward me so you can see me. The Lord, make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The, the eyes of the Father are always ranging throughout the earth. I needed my Father's eyes on me for comfort, for protection. And so do you. And you can rest and the assurance that your Heavenly Father's eyes are always on you. All you need to do is turn to Him. I'm going to read Psalm, just Psalm 139, just verses 8 through 10. If I go to, up to the heavens, you are there. If I make my bed in the depths, you are there. 
If I rise on the wings of the dawn, if I settle on the far side of the sea, even there your hand will guide me, your right hand will hold me fast. My friends, may you seek, may you seek your father out knowing that his eyes are already on you and that he will jump off the porch to run to you, you, his beloved child, to throw his arms around you and welcome you up into his lap. That is what I want for you. That's what Jesus wants for you. That's what your heavenly father, he gives us, he paints us that picture over and over. So if I can just get you comfortable and confident in approaching your heavenly father, And we're going to look in just a moment about how various people approached Jesus and what we can learn from that. But if I can get you comfortable and confident in approaching your Heavenly Father, knowing that He's there, then we've accomplished most of what we need to accomplish. If I can get you into a conversational relationship on and off throughout the day, then I've accomplished most of what anybody would need to accomplish because because He's real. He's who He said He is. And He'll respond. You just start and watch him come in and you'll sense his presence and you'll sense his power and you'll sense his perfect love. Just start that conversation. Last week, you should go back and listen to last week's show. Watch the Vimeo video on it. We saw Elijah, who's the greatest prophet in the Old Testament, lose all his faith and run like a scared rabbit from Jezebel. And yet, we would think, Elijah, he can do incredible things that I could never do in my prayer life because I don't have that kind of faith. But we saw him. We saw an example that he's perhaps has no more faith than you do. So we just keep going to our Heavenly Father as we are. So let's just keep this theme going. Jesus says, and we don't ever want to forget this fact, and I'm emphasizing fact, for everyone who asks receives. And I think the best way to finish that sentence is everyone who asks receives an answer, receives a response. There's no such thing as unanswered prayer in Jesus' world, in the kingdom of God. It, it, it probably won't be exactly what you asked, although oftentimes it is. But perhaps it's better when it isn't because we don't even know what to pray for. But everyone who asks receives. And then he reminds us, if you then, though you are evil, though you're human, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more Will your Father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? I was reading an article, a little short article, by Ted Winsley, who's the Philadelphia Eagles chaplain, and he, he breaks down that word ask. And, and the Greek word is aiteo, A-I-T-E-O, and it means to, to be adamant in your request for demanding such things as tangible needs, food, shelter, money, and so forth. And although that Greek word ataio means to demand or to insist, it gives, it has a connotation of not being rude or arrogant. In fact, oftentimes it, it is, it is, the connotation is an inferior someone, person approaching their superior. Not, de, not demanding, but asking that they meet their request. So when you know you're praying according to God's will, he continues, you don't have to sheepishly utter your request. Rather, you can go boldly and assert your faith and expect God to move on your behalf. I agree with that. But the question is when he says, when you know you're praying according to the will of God. I don't know always when I'm praying according to the will of God. I don't know that. So when I'm not sure or no matter what, I pray like this. We 
we finished last week with this, the Daniel 3 prayer. Daniel 3, 1, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are faced with Nebuchadnezzar, who is threatening to put them into a blazing furnace if they don't bow down to the statue that he has had erected of himself. And they say, we don't need to defend ourselves in front of you. If we're thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to deliver us. So that's number one. He's able to do it. He's all-powerful. He can do anything. And they go on to say, and we believe that he will deliver us from your majesty's hands. So he's able. He's perfectly powerful. He's able, he's able to do it, and he will do it. But just in case we're wrong about the will of God, and quite often we are, even if he does not, we want you to know that we will not bow down to your statue. Even if God doesn't answer my prayer the way I thought he would because I was pretty sure I was in his will, I'm not going to lose my trust in him. So today, what is mustard seed trust? What is great faith trust? Jesus said all, all you need is mustard seed trust. What is that? Let's define that. Let's get comfortable with that because as we saw last week, Elijah seems to be a man of great faith. The, the prayers of a righteous man are powerful and effective, James says in chapter 5. But then he reminds us that Elijah is just a man, just like us. So we go to Hebrews 11, 11, 6, and we get, we get an actual definition of what great trust looks like, great faith. And I, I like to substitute trust for faith. It just has more traction. So... Uh, Hebrews eleven six and without trust, without faith, without trust, it is impossible to please God. Wouldn't that be true of any relationship? How would you have any 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 kind of rich relationship with anyone if you don't trust them or they don't trust you? you it's impossible. So, <laughs> common sense. And without trust, it is impossible to please God because anyone who comes to Him must. And then there's a colon which tells us that here comes the definition of what that trust looks like. You ready? It's very complicated. You might need several pads of paper to write down all the finer points of this. Number one, because anyone who comes to him must, number one, believe that he exists, and two, and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. Believe that he exists. I know you're real, God. I know you're real, Father. I know you're real, Jesus. And that I know you will respond to my prayer in the best way. Everyone who asks receives. That's it. Maybe you should add a five-point presentation on prayer. Maybe, maybe you should add to what this believe that he exists. Let's complicate that some more. Let's get, let's get, let's get wrapped around the axle on that. No, it's just that simple. Believe that he exists and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. And so let's look at a couple of examples of people who earnestly seek him, what that looks like. We've got the, the first one I think is so interesting is the centurion that we see in Matthew 8. Now, this is a powerful man. I mean, a centurion, a Roman centurion is going to come to some Jewish itinerant rabbi? That would never happen. We must, we must understand the context, but look how he approaches when Jesus, Matthew 8, 5, when Jesus had entered Capernaum, a centurion came to him, listen, asking for help. Lord, he said, my servant lies at home paralyzed, suffering terribly, asking for help. 
Now, this powerful centurion is coming to this nobody, nobody, Jewish peasant, asking for help. You know, years ago, we had a family member who was went to a rehabilitation place for different issues, not drugs, but different issues. And my wife and I went there for the final weekend, and one of the exercises they had already put the, I'll, I'll call them patients, uh, that they'd already put them through, they, they, let, they put us through it, and it was, it was called the ropes course, but it's not the kind of ropes course you think. There was a room, let's say the room was 50 by 50 feet, and we'd been in there for two or three days, so I knew where all the exits were. They blindfold us, they take us into the room, now they've got ropes strung all around it, across it, or, or diagonal, at right angles, along the wall, and we can't, we're blindfolded, we can't see anything. And we walk in, and they say, now, uh, we're going to put your hands on the rope, and then you find the way out. And they say, if you have any, if you, if, you, if you need anything, raise your hand, and one of the counselors will come over. And it's not a competition, but let's start now, and you find your way out. And five minutes into it, we hear, Sarah found the way out, and everybody claps, which if you don't know me. I'm very competitive. That irritated me because I thought it wasn't a competition. So now I'm a little bit frustrated. So I go on for 30 minutes, blindfolded, trying to find the way out. I know where the doors are. I have a sense of where, at least I started with a sense of where I was. After 30 minutes, I raised my hand. One of the counselors came over and, I, and he said, uh, what, what, do you, what, what can I do? And I said, I want you to tell me that there is no way out, that there's some catch to this. And that there's, you have some other thing you're doing here. And he said, no, that's what you want. What do you need? I said, I want you to tell me that there, this is a big hoax, that you're trying to teach us some lesson, that I'm not going to sit here for the next 30 minutes trying to find my way out because there's no way out. He said, that's what you want. What do you need? And I said, forget it. I'm not interested in your gobbledygook therapy language. So I continued to go. Unbeknownst to me, but it soon became clear, my wife was the next to the last because she's pretty high on performance too. I was the last person, and finally, I just, hearing people, they're laughing at me now because I can't, you know, bump into the wall. I mean, it's pathetic, and I'm really frustrated. I take the mask off, I tear it off, and I use a word that I wouldn't use on the radio. I apologize for it, but I did. And the head counselor comes over and says, what are you doing? I said, this is ridiculous. There's no way out. And he said, the way out is to ask for help. That's all these other folks did. They raised their hand, and when the person said, what do you need, they said, I need help. See, I said, I want you to tell me this is a big hoax. And he kept saying, no, that's what you want. What do you need? And I, didn't, I never, no. The way out is to ask for help. And the clear message for anyone in recovery is you cannot do this on your own. You need help. But that's a clear message for all of us. We cannot do this on our own. We need help. The Roman centurion, this powerful man, probably rich man, he comes to this little Jewish peasant and says, I need your help. I'm asking for help. And then Jesus says, okay, I'll come. And, and the centurion says, no, 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 I don't deserve to have you come. The, I see two things at play there. And it fits in with, the Hebrews 11:6 believe that he exists and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. 
the centurion goes to this man believing that he is the son of God, that he has something special. He calls him Lord. And then he comes humbly, knowing that he can and will respond to his, his coming. That's all it takes. He says, I don't deserve it. So imagine you going in your prayer request to say, with your list of things, pretty sure you're right and perhaps even close to demanding that God do it the way you asked him to do it. That's not the way this powerful Roman centurion came to Jesus. He asked for help, and he said, I don't even deserve it. What if you went in your prayers and said, I'm just here for help? I'm just here for help. I don't even have a list of things I want to talk about because I know you know what I need. Before I ever ask, I'm just here for help. And by the way, I don't deserve your help. I don't deserve anything from you. I think that fits that whole definition of prayer, don't you? But we can keep going. John 4, right around verse 46, Jesus is back over in Cana where he had um, turned the water to wine. A certain royal official. So now this is someone who works in the palace, probably for King Herod. So he's a pretty powerful person. His son is sick back in Capernaum. When he hears that Jesus is up there in Galilee, he seeks him out. He goes over to Cana, and he begs him to come. He begs him to come. He didn't come in with any props. He didn't come in with his entourage. He didn't come in with his peeps. He came in begging for help, just like the Roman centurion asking for help. This man's begging for help. And Jesus says, go, go. Your child will live. And, and this man, this is the most, one of the most astounding things I've, I've seen in the, old, in the New Testament. In verse 50 of John 4, the, here's what we read. The man took Jesus at his word and departed. He just took Jesus. He, just like we see in Hebrews eleven six, he knows that Jesus rewards those who earnestly seek him. This man is earnestly seeking him, and he knows that he responds. Now, if you and I were in this situation, as we said in just in a previous show, Jesus told us to go, your son will live. We'd say, whoa, 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 aren't you coming with us? Wait a minute. If you're not coming with me, then I need a list of things to do when I get home. I mean, how many people do I need to get praying? How should I get? I got five prayer warriors I think I can get. Should I get 50? Do we put oil on their head? Do we do all these other things, all these gyrations? No, the man took Jesus at his word and departed. Powerful man. What is the definition of great faith? Without trust, it is impossible to please God because anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists, he's real, and that he will respond always. He will reward those who come to him, earnestly seeking him. Neither one of these men, the Roman centurion or the royal official from the palace, were seeking anything about themselves. They were there asking Jesus for help and doing, coming with a humble heart. We get another story. Luke 8, Jesus is he's back in Capernaum, and a man named Jairus, a synagogue ruler, that's an important person, came and fell at Jesus' feet. Now, you know, let's, again, let's remember the context. Jesus is uprooting, in the eyes of the Jewish authorities, he's uprooting the whole Jewish system. He's not, but in their eyes he is. This is the synagogue leader, and he comes and falls at Jesus' feet and pleads with him. Powerful man. 
Jesus says, okay, I'll go. I'll go heal him while he's going. This woman who's been bleeding for 12 years, who, by the way, is unclean. Nobody is ever supposed to touch her at this point. She squeezes through the crowd, and she touches the edge of his cloak, and immediately her bleeding stopped. And Jesus says, well, who touched me? He stops. And Peter said, Master, there are people all over the place. What do you mean, who touched you? Everybody's touching you. Jesus said, no, someone touched me. I know that power has gone out from under me. And this woman, now this woman, is, you know, we've just seen three important men, powerful, rich, important men coming to Jesus humbly, asking, pleading for help. Just like this woman who is so unimportant, she's actually unclean. She comes and she says, I'm sorry, I I knew if I could just touch you. She came trembling and fell at his feet, just like these three powerful men. And I knew that if I could just touch you. And Jesus says, go, your trust has healed you. Not I, I haven't healed you, your trust has healed you. Now all this while, Jairus' daughter is dying. If I'm Jairus, I'm saying, come on, let's get moving. What are we doing here? So they start back, but they come and say, no, your daughter's already died. It's too late. Jesus said, no, no, don't be afraid, just believe. Don't be afraid, just believe. I read in one translation, don't succumb to your fear. Don't give in to your fear. Just trust me. Just trust me. So he goes and he heals the little girl, as we know he did. We've got all these powerful people coming to Jesus Then we read in John 5 that Jesus says to these intellectuals, he says, you study the scriptures diligently because you think that in them you have eternal life. These are the very scriptures that testify about me, yet you refuse to come to me to have life. We've got these rich, important, powerful men who humble themselves, just like this unimportant woman. And then we've got, in contrast, these intellectuals. I had a man come to me. Oh, I've had several men over these years of doing men's ministry say, uh, look, I know you like all this other stuff and you like to talk about being born again and, and, and praying with faith and all that and, and you know, being, having a personal relationship, but I prefer the intellectual approach. Just like these people he's talking about, you study the scriptures diligently, you think because in them you'll find eternal life, but they're talking about me and you refuse to, what? Come to me to have life like these other people did. Jesus says you're not going to find it. And then he turns around in Matthew eleven twenty five, and he says, I praise you, Lord, God of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from these intellectuals and revealed them to children. So my conclusion, my friends, is just come to him. Just come to him. Come to him as a child. As C.S. Lewis puts it, come to him with a grown-up's head and a child's heart, and then you will find what you are seeking. Jesus will always respond to you always in the best way, always in the perfect timing. I'm Sam Hunter, and this is 721 Live. So long, God's peace to you. I hope to see you next Friday.